no losses will be, and I want this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. And that music can only mean one thing. The Delaware Valley Journal is on the air. The official podcast of DelawareValleyJournal.com. We cover Bucks, Chester, Delaware, and Montgomery counties. Stories you won't find anywhere else. Thanks to our intrepid news individual, formerly news lady, but we don't say that anymore, Linda Stein. How are you, Linda? Good, Michael. Well, listen, you've been doing a fantastic job, and there's news coming out all over the place across uh, southeastern Pennsylvania. And what story is bigger than the possibility of a U.S. Senate challenge to Bob Casey uh, coming up uh, next year? And a person who's written a book that's helping inspire that conversation, Dave McCormick. Welcome back to the podcast. So glad that we have your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Dave, you've written the book Superpower in Peril. We're going to talk about it, though, not in the gag-inducing, fawning way that my frenemy Hugh Hewitt does on his radio show. So you're not going to get that from us, okay? Uh, Just a warning. (laughs) But I do want to ask you, before we get to the book, obviously some uh, current events, and the big one is the uh, Silicon uh, Valley Bank collapse. A couple of other banks have, have gotten roped in, and because of your work in that world of investment, venture capital, et cetera, what should a dummy like me who can barely balance his checkbook know about what the heck happened and what it's going to mean for normal taxpayers and people? Well, I think, um, you know, there's, there's uh, information still coming in and uh, anybody that's predicting too much probably uh, is too confident because this is a very dynamic situation. But three things that, that I'd want to highlight. The first is what's happening here. It's easy to lose sight that there's a set of root causes that are pervasive behind this whole SVB thing. And it's really the the fact that we've had a a decade or more of misguided fiscal policy and misguided monetary policy. We've had fiscal policy that has been enormous spending, and and that spending has accelerated dramatically under Joe Biden. Uh, Discretionary spending has gone up by about 40%. You've had the three big pieces of legislation, which have added something like $18 trillion of new spending over the next 10 years. And that's a huge driver of inflation. The second thing you've had uh, is you've had uh, uh, zero interest rates or very low interest rates for, for a long time. And you've had investors that have been operating on that premise. And so they've had to lock in long duration treasuries and things like that in search of yield. And when the Fed raised rates to essentially offset the, the inflation that they helped create, that created a, a crisis at, at SVB because those, uh, those treasuries that they held in their balance sheet went down in value. They had to sell capital to try to close the hole. And that spooked their depositors and their depositors started to take out money. And, um, and so that's the first thing. This is, this is the tip of the iceberg in terms right. of the problem. And that problem's not going to go away until we get our fiscal house in order and, and back to our normal monetary policy. Second, you know, it appears that the Silicon Valley Bank was terribly managed, uh, terribly managed risk, terribly managed in terms of a very concentrated set of depositors. And when there was uh, blood in the water and they sensed a risk, everybody was connected and they pulled out uh, together. And that's what created the crisis. But there was supposed to be oversight of this. And the oversight is the San Francisco Federal Reserve. And so it appears that there was a a, a huge gap in leadership at SVB, but also a huge problem with the the Fed oversight. Third point I make is, listen, when you're in a crisis like these, it's very difficult to manage. Um, I, I, I think what they've done, what the Fed and the FDIC have done, 
and entering the management team, trying to sell the bank, but failing. I wish they could have figured out a way to do that. I, I'm surprised they couldn't. Uh, getting rid of the management team and then and then uh, essentially drowning the equity holders and the credit holders makes sense when they uh, gave a hundred percent guarantee to the uninsured depositors. I think that's created a moral hazard problem, and I worry that that set a precedent that's going to be very hard right. to fulfill across the entire banking industry. I understand why they did it. I think it was probably a step too far. The last that- thing they did, which I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. The last thing they did, which, you know, banking is about confidence. Your money is not sitting in the bank. Only a fraction of your money is available in the bank. So banking works on people believing that they can get their deposits when they want them. So what the Federal Reserve did is they gave a liquidity mechanism for banks to be to guarantee banks could draw on their reserves. And I think that probably has moved because that should let us know that other big banks can get access to the money for deposits. Right. So that's, I think, um, for the moment, at least, um, cooled some of the anxiety. But make no mistake, those fundamental problems that I started with um, persist. And there's going to be a lot more challenges to our economy because of them. And I'm I'm day that I think this is the first of many uh, shoes to drop. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the moral hazard thing, because I am concerned, too, once you set the the deal that however badly your bank manages your money, you're going to get it all back. So don't worry about the half a billion dollars you still Stuck in the, no, I think you should worry. That's your job. But I want to ask one more thing for you, Linda, about this. We have a piece at uh, DelawareValleyJournal.com right now from a writer who noted that the m- risk manager for SV, Silicon Valley Bank in the UK, the first sentence of her bio is, as a queer woman of color who immigrated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and the whole piece is about her, you know, uh, uh, social identity, et cetera. And SVB had a reputation for being very involved in ESG. You know, some people call it woke lending. In fact, we've seen, I've seen reports that uh, there were deals that were made in Silicon Valley with, with startups. And we were told basically you have to use this bank because we claim to be an ESG company and, and we use them to, you know, to, to check the box that we're ESG, which is one of the reasons why this bank exploded in size at, it came out of nowhere to suddenly being a top 20 you know, bank. And so I'm just wondering, let's say just that, that randomly saying a certain name person named Dave McCormick happened to end up in the U.S. Senate. Just a crazy, crazy thought. I know. <laughs> Is there a place for federal oversight, for example, confronting this rule that President Biden's trying to push through that says to management managers of retirement money? You can make ESG decisions. It doesn't have to be fiduciary first. It can be social justice and fiduciary. Do you see a regulatory, in other words, a problem that a government could do something about in circumstances like these? Yeah, well, um, I, I do. Uh, so I, I don't know the specifics of the person you're referring to, the risk manager. So, but, but let me try to address the broader question. I do think that um, the, the way ESG has been promoted from everybody from BlackRock to the S within uh, investment management firms and also pension plans is highly problematic because it's, um, it's diminished the role of fiduciary responsibility to deliver the best uh, risk-adjusted return for the pensioners. So if you're a policeman in Texas and you've been working your tail off for 30 years to have a decent pension, and that pension is, uh, is, is, in a, uh, is in a pension plan that's dictated to have ESG be a primary consideration that diminishes the return for you as a retiree, that's just fundamentally unfair. It's, 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 pro, it's projecting a social agenda 
hack of a retiree who had no interest in that social ob objective and, um, and paid into the retirement plan because they thought that was the best way to maximize their retirement. So I think it's, it's deeply problematic. Now, if someone wants to invest their own capital in, um, in, in Ben and Jerry's or a, a place that uh, has a particular social agenda, great. And if somebody wants to invest in Black Rifle Coffee because they believe they have a, a different social agenda, that's great too. So I've got no problem with people allocating capital, their own capital, in pursuit of, of something beyond a pure profit motive. But, but that's not the case with institutions like pension plans, the SEC, or uh, asset managers. And so I, I think that something does need to be done about it. I think the backlash is warranted. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, but I'm also wondering, why did you write this book? Well, the reason I wrote the book, I started a couple years uh, ago with, with a set of articles. Um, I wrote an article on, uh, on the military and innovation and woke. I wrote an article about the intersection of national security and economic security and technology. And I, so I had three or four essays and I thought, you know, there's a book here. There's a book here about bringing together a set of policies that's, that's gonna drive America forward. And I was increasingly concerned about American decline. So I started to write the book. I sold the book and started to write the book. And I got about with a colleague and I got about 60, 70% done with it uh, before I decided to run for the Senate. And so it delayed it obviously. And my colleague continued to work on it a bit. And, uh, and then I finished it after the campaign. And, and the book changed a bit. It was pretty prescriptive policy wonky book. And uh, the campaign, I think, brought it to life uh, because the things, the things I was talking about, you know, the impacts of globalization or, you know, sovereignty and our border, I, I, had the, I had the real life stories on the ground. And, uh, you know, when you talk about fentanyl and you meet somebody in Canberra County who lost someone in their family due to fentanyl, you're talking about globalization and, you know, you're, you're talking to folks who's at the mill who got, you know, uh, got closed down and lost jobs. So uh, it became a book that really was uh, still very policy driven, but informed by lots of real real time stories on the ground. So it was uh, partly your biography too, right? It was, yeah. And, and I, I tried to do it in a way uh, that wasn't like, hey, you know, I was born here and I you know, went to high school here kind of thing. But when I talked about policies, I tried to contextualize the policies based on my experiences. So when I talk about the military, I talk about my time in the military. I talk about big data. I talk about running one of the biggest investment firms in the world. When I talk about China, I talk about the early, you know, in 1992, um, after I left the army, I took a backpack and I went to China. And there was a, a book called Riding the Iron Rooster by Paul Thoreau. And I read that book and I said, I'm going to do that. So I got on the Iron Rooster. Wow. I spent, I don't know, a couple of days and made my way to part of China. And all those experiences have informed what I think about policy, but also about leadership. And so- I tried to, in a very uh, um, you know, tangible way, talk about those things. And I also tried to talk about leadership, but not in a like rah-rah, you know, here, here what a great leader I am, or here's what great leadership looks like. Right. I tried to talk about leadership authentically, including failure, which I've had a fair share of. So I try to uh, uh, talk about that in the book. Well, um, you can't be that smart because you jumped out of airplanes. And anybody who jumps out of airplanes, <laughs> I always think there's something wrong here. But if you had to say, there's someone reading your book, about uh, you know America's competitiveness and this and this superpower struggle that we're in, which tool? Obviously, all the tools are important, but which tool do you conclude is the most important for us to wield right now—the economic one or the military one? Well, the real premise of the book is that longer the right way to think about it, honestly, because they're mutual. They, they are this uh, different side of the same coin. 
Um, you know, if you have, you're a leading artificial intelligence uh, company in the world, or you have that in your economy, that's critical to our national security and defense. 5G, if you look at, the, there was an Australian a think tank that released a report last week, the 44 most critical technologies to national security and the economy um, were evaluated. 37 of those, China has the lead. So China has a plan for global dominance. And the, the question the book answers is, what is our plan? And the plan I put forward is essentially educate our people. Seems so simple. Uh, fix our schools, get back on track with math, science, and engineering, teach a, the, the, an honest version of history and America's exceptionalism, create a skilled workforce that can compete against any country in the world, take on China, confront China with a comprehensive whole of nation strategy that, that was our... Uh, economy in key strategic areas and holds China accountable and doesn't support China through investment in, uh, in areas that are going to help the Chinese military and, uh, and build our military and take on our institutions in a way that reforms the progressive agenda that's infiltrated our schools and our military and, and, and uh, uh, our, our churches and our, uh, on our businesses. So that's so, the agenda. So is China the peril that you mentioned in the title? Well, there's two, there's two perils and they're, uh, uh, they're very much related. One is our decline, our decline in economic terms, our, the, loss of, the loss of productivity, uh, the loss of the American dream. So uh, today uh, it's less likely than ever since World War II that you can be born in the fourth quartile socioeconomically and make it to the uh, third, second or first. Uh, today, more American parents uh, then, then a more, majority of American parents, kids are going to be less well off than they are. And the data supports that. 80% of Americans think uh, they're heading in the wrong direction. So we are in decline. And, um, and decline, but the decline is not inevitable. And that's what the book says. The book has a very ominous cover, uh, a superpower in peril, but, but it's actually a very optimistic book because we can renew ourselves uh, at home. Now, that renewal at home is also critical to confronting China abroad. It's critical to our ability to compete with China as, a, as an economic adversary and as a national security adversary. And so this book is an agenda to both be able to maintain our superpower uh, primacy in the world, but also to reinvigorate the American dream at home. So China is more dangerous to us than Russia? Oh, far, far more dangerous. China is the most significant existential threat in the history of, of the country, with perhaps the exception of, of the Civil War. And, um, and the reason I say that is because China is an is a economic powerhouse. Uh, it's a techno-authoritarian business model that's proven a capacity to uh, grow dramatically, to incorporate some, not all, free market principles, but to drive uh, a military capability and economic capability that's that's truly been been able to compete with the United States. I think there's deep flaws in the system, but one has to take it very very seriously. And their capacity to take the data of their citizens and drive behavior and drive uh, innovation is something that uh, our system is not well well equipped to compete with. And so one of the things I talk about in the book uh, is the strategy to ensure we can maintain technological leadership in the world. And I think there's gonna have to be a new approach to doing that. We have to dramatically increase our research and development and we have to draw market-based capital in these key technologies that are critical to our economy and also our security. 
And um, and so the book tries to take that on because on the current path we're losing uh, we're losing our our edge relative to China, and uh, we have to turn that around. You mentioned gathering data. Uh, as you know, uh, both Senator Casey and Senator Fetterman have TikTok accounts. Do you ever share dancing videos with them on your phone using your TikTok? Well, I'm not a TikTok, and uh, I, I'm I'm interested in in the fact well, that's new information to me. But I but I think uh, uh, putting aside the, the 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 fun of it, it's it's a problem. Uh, we've got a problem at um, at home with TikTok where um, our, our kids are, are are deeply addicted to it. Now that's a parent parental issue, mm-hmm. but it's interesting that the Chinese constrain um, the use of TikTok only for a very limited time and specific purpose, and it's wide open in the United States. But but a more serious problem is the data that that creates. There was a story, and I I highlight this in in my book Superpower and Peril about TikTok uh, uh, the Chinese getting access to Fitbit data from our soldiers in Afghanistan. And through that, having a sense of some of the military operations that were taking place. That data is deeply troubling. And the the fact that it's in the hands of the Chinese is deeply troubling. Our data, our individual data, is in the hands of the social media companies is deeply troubling too. It always gives me a sinking feeling in my stomach when I buy a pair of sneakers or something online. And for the next two weeks, I get all sorts of related products sold every time I get on the internet, right? Right. And that's a major problem because our privacy is being, um, is being uh, compromised by the, by the way we engage with social media and the way we engage on the internet. And there needs to be better privacy protection. And the other problem, and, you know, I don't know if you would agree with me as a journalist, but the whole social media arena is, is, is certainly not a free marketplace of ideas. It's heavily weighted in favor of, of liberal ideology. And we see that in the whole discussion of COVID, the fact that our Intel services have been saying that was likely emanated from the Wuhan labs, but that right. was something that was dismissed outright. We see it in the Hunter Biden laptop. So we got a problem. And so one of the things I do in the to be very forthright about it, I say, listen, I'm a conservative, I'm a free market capitalist, but there's, but there's certain cases where that free market ideology is just not working. It's not working with China. So we have to have a much more uh, demanding set of uh, requirements before we do have any commercial ties to the Chinese. And I say it with, with big tech. And there's, a, there's a, a, a part of the book that says, what would Milton Friedman do? And uh, I'm sure Milton Friedman would say that uh, what I'm arguing for is against what he believes. Absolutely. I said, and I said, uh, back, well, what would Milton Friedman say to, to, to the fact that China is eating our lunch in many of these technologies and we don't have a plan? So we need to push ourselves to deal with the reality of our moment. We need to stay true to conservative principles, but we also need to adopt to the new reality. And, and that's what Superpower Apparel tries to do. It tries to embrace our reality and put forward a positive agenda in the country. Well, if somebody wants to drop large amounts of money on center-right news outlets like Delaware Valley Journal, we're happy to take that. And you can write that check out to cash, Dave McCormick. So, I, so, so, let me, so let me wrap up with this. So you're saying that if you happen to be a U.S. senator, we would have one fewer U.S. senators with TikTok accounts. What That's are the, the odds sure. that Dave McCormick might be running for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania in 2024? Yeah, I'm obviously thinking about it. You know, you don't you don't uh, run for office like we did in 2022 and put your heart and soul in it and lose by 900 votes and and lose the motivation to serve. So, you know, we uh, 
uh, we we got into this because we thought the country was headed in the wrong direction, and that that I, I could contribute to to its uh, success and future. And that motivation is still strong. You know, we're praying about it, thinking about it as a family. We haven't decided. Um, it's it's important to know two things. One, it's the first time in 76 years we've had two Democrats in the Senate from Pennsylvania. So uh, I don't think I think Pennsylvania deserves better. I think uh, my uh, my certainly my sense from the campaign trail is that there's growing concern about the the lurch to the left and the progressive policies of the Democrats, which are not just uh, Senator Fetterman but Senator Casey. And so um, we need to uh, change that. And uh, you know the case I make in, in superpower and peril is listen we got as Republicans we got to we got to do three things we've got to structurally deal with the mail in ballot issue and uh, register new voters and we got to we got to turn out if those are going to be the rules we got to figure out a win we can't start elections with five hundred thousand votes down because right. the Democrats have mail in balloting and we don't second thing we got to do is we got to pick candidates in the primary that can win the general. And, you know, as I try to make the argument here in superpower and peril, as conservatives, we agree on 80% of a lot of things. And, and, and so we should be able to find candidates that we can get behind and, and who can win uh, statewide and win nationally. And that's, uh, that's the, second, the second thing. And the third thing related to the second thing is we need a positive vision forward. We can't win looking backward. We can't uh, talk about grievances without talking about solutions. And the one thing I'm highly confident in from my time in the campaign trails, people want to know how we're going to fix inflation, how we're going to fix the fentanyl crisis, what are we going to do about China? And so I don't think we can just wave our hands. I think we got to have real solutions. And that's what this book's trying to do. And you know, those are the things that I'm reflecting on as I think about whether I'm, you know, the best way to serve is to, to run for the Senate or not. Well, I do have to uh, to correct you on one minor fact uh, point there. At one point, we did have Harris Wofford and Arlen Specter as U.S. senators. Okay, and you're one of them the technically, Arlen, you're going to bring up the moment, the brief yes, moment that Arlen Specter was a well, Democrat. Well, I'm sorry. I think Arlen Specter was a Democrat the entire time he was in the U.S. <laughs> Senate. That's just my take. But that's all right. That's, that's okay, my view. No, I'm, obviously, I'm kidding. The book is called Superpower in Peril. Dave McCormick, thanks so much for joining us here on the Delaware Valley Journal podcast. We really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Great to be with you guys. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dave. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the Delaware Valley Journal on the air. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your friends, post it on social media. And if you haven't, sign up for our twice a week newsletter so you don't miss any of the terrific content from DelawareValleyJournal.com. Thanks again. I'm your host, Michael Graham.